0: Between 1948 and 1953, Robinson Jeffers wrote some of the most memorable poems that I know of, and I wanted to read a handful of them here. The first of them is called Animals. At dawn, a knot of sea lions lies off the shore, in the slow swell between the rock and the cliff, sharp flippers lifted, or great-eyed heads. As they roll in the sea, bigger than draft horses and barking like dogs, their all night song. It makes me wonder a little that life near kin to human, intelligent, hot blooded, idle in singing, can float at ease in the ice cold midwinter water. Then, yellow dawn colors the south. I think about the rapid and furious lives in the sun. They have little to do with ours. They have nothing to do with oxygen and salted water. They would look monstrous if we could see them. The beautiful, passionate bodies of living flame, bat-like, flapping and screaming, tortured with burning lust and acute awareness, that ride the storm tides of the great fire globe. They are animals, as we are. There are many other chemistries of animal life, besides the slow oxidation of carbohydrates and amino acids." And I I still don't know of anyone who could get away with that last line, other than Robinson Jeffers. The second poem is Time of Disturbance. The best is, in war or faction or ordinary vindictive life, not to take sides. Leave it for children and the emotional rabble of the streets, to back their horse, or support, or brawler. But if you are forced into it, remember that good and evil are as common as air, and like air shared by the panting belligerents, the moral indignation that horsens orators is mostly a fool. Hold your nose and compromise, keep a cold mind, fight if needs must. Hate no one. Do as God does, or the tragic poets. They crush their man without hating him, their Lear or Hitler, and often save without love. As for these quarrels, they are like the moon, recurrent and fantastic. They have their beauty, but nights is better. It is better to be silent than make a noise. It is better to strike dead than strike often. It is better not to strike. THE BEAUTY OF THINGS To feel and speak the astonishing beauty of things, earth, stone, and water, beast, man and woman, sun, moon, stars, the bloodshot beauty of human nature, its thoughts, frenzies and passions, and unhuman nature its towering reality, for man's half dream. Man you might say is nature dreaming, but rock and water and sky are constant. To feel greatly and understand greatly and express greatly, the natural beauty is the sole business of poetry. The rest's diversion those holy or noble sentiments, the intricate ideas, the love, lust, longing, reasons, but not the reason. The World's Wonders Being now three or four years more than sixty, I have seen strange things in my time. I have seen a merman standing waist-deep in the ocean off my rock shore, unmistakably human and unmistakably sea-beast. He submerged and never came up again while we stood watching. I do not know what he was, and I have no theory, but this was the least of wonders. I have seen the United States grow up the strongest and wealthiest of nations and swim in the wind over bankruptcy. I have seen Europe for 2,500 years, the crown of the world, become its beggar and cripple. I have seen my people fooled by ambitious men and a froth of sentiment, waste themselves on three wars. None was required, all futile, all grandly victorious. A fourth is forming. I have seen the invention of human flight, a chief desire of man's dreaming heart for ten thousand years, and men have made of it the chief means of massacre. I have seen the far stars weighed and their distance measured, and the powers that make the atom put into service, for what? To kill. To kill half a million flies, men I should say, at one slap. I have also seen doom. You can stand up and struggle or lie down and sleep. You are doomed as Oedipus. A man and a civilization grow old, grow fatally as we say, ill. Courage and the will are bystanders. It is easy to know the beauty of inhuman things, sea, storm, and mountain. It is their soul and their meaning. Humanity has its lesser beauty, impure and painful. We have to harden our hearts to bear it. I have hardened my heart only a little. I have learned that happiness is important, but pain gives importance. The use of tragedy. Lear becomes as tall as the storm he crawls in. And a tortured Jew becomes God. THE OLD STONEMASON Stones that rolled in the sea for a thousand years have climbed the cliff and stand stiff rank in the house walls. Hurricanes may spit his lungs out, they'll not be moved. They have become conservative. They remember the endless treacheries of ever-sliding water and slimy ambushes along the shore. They'll never again give themselves to the tides and the dreams, the popular drift, the whirlpool progress, but stand steady on their hill, at bay, yes, but unbroken. I have much in common with these old rockheads. Old comrades, I too have escaped and stand. I have shared in my time the human illusions, the muddy foolishness and craving passions, but something thirty years ago pulled me out of the tide wash. I must not even pretend to be one of the people. I must stand here alone with open eyes, in the clear air growing old, watching with interest and only a little nausea, the cheating shepherds, this time of the demagogues and the docile people, the shifts of powers, and pitiless general wars that prepare the fall. But also, The enormous, unhuman beauty of things. Rock, sea, and stars, foolproof and permanent. The birds like yachts in the air, or beating like hearts along the water. The flares of sunset, the peaks of Point Lobos, and here at night the huge waves, my drunken quarrymen climbing the cliff, hewing out more stones for me to make my house. The old granite stones, Those are my people Hard heads and stiff wits But faithful, not fools Not chatterers And the place where they stand today Will stand also tomorrow And this next poem is only a section uh, From a longer poem called Hungerfield And this is about uh, the death of Robinson Jeffers' wife. It is possible that all these conditions of us are fixed points on the returning orbit of time and exist eternally. It is no good. Una has died and I am left waiting for death like a leafless tree waiting for the roots to rot and the trunk to fall. I never thought you would leave me, dear love. I knew you would die sometime. I should die first, but you have died. It is quite natural. Because you loved life, you must die first, and I, who never cared much, live on. Life is cheap these days. We have to compete with Asia. We are cheap as dust, and death is cheap, but not hers. It is a common thing. We die. We cease to exist. And our dear lovers fulfill themselves with sorrow and drunkenness, the court at midnight and the cups in the morning, or they go seeking a second love, but you and I are at least not ridiculous. September again, the gray grass, the gray sea, the ink-black trees with white-bellied night herons in them, brawling on the boughs at dusk, barking like dogs, and the awful loss it is a year she has died and I have lived for a long year on soft rotten emotions vain longing and drunken pity grief and gray ashes o oh, child of god it is not that i am lonely for you i am lonely i am mutilated for you are part of me but men endure that i am growing old and my love is gone no doubt I can live without you bitterly and well that's not the cry my torment is memory my grief to have seen the banner and beauty of your brave life dragged in the dust down the dim road to death to have seen you defeated you who never despaired passing through weakness and pain to nothing it is usual I believe I stood by I believe I never failed you. The contemptible thought, whether I failed or not, I am not the one. I was not dying. Is death bitter, my dearest? It is nothing. It is a silence. But dying can be bitter. In this black year, I have thought often of Hungerfield, the man at Horse Creek who fought with death. Bodily, said the witness, throat for throat fury against fury in the dark, and conquered him. If I had the courage and the hope, or the pure rage, I should now be death's captive, no doubt, not conqueror. I should be with my dearest in the hollow darkness where nothing hurts. I should not remember your silver-backed hand-mirror you asked me for, and sat up in bed to gaze in it, to see your face a little changed. You were still beautiful, but not as you'd been a falcon. You said nothing. You sighed and laid down the glass, and I made a dog smile over a tearing heart, saying that you looked well. The lies, the faithless, hopeless, unbelieved lies, while you lay dying. For these reasons, I wish to make verses again, to drug memory, to make it sleep for a moment. Never fear, I shall not forget you, until I am with you. The dead indeed forget all things, and when I speak to you it is only play-acting and self-indulgence. You cannot hear me, you do not exist, dearest. and this is called De Rerum Virtut. Here is the skull of a man. A man's thoughts and emotions have moved under the thin bone vault like clouds under the blue one. Love and desire and pain, thunderclouds of wrath and white gales of fear have hung inside here. And sometimes. The curious desire of knowing values and purpose and the causes of things has coasted like a little observer airplane over the images that filled this mind. It never discovered much, and now all's empty, a bone bubble, a blown out eggshell. That's what it's like. For the egg, too, has a mind, doing what our able chemists will never do building the body of a hatchling, choosing among the proteins. These for the young wing muscles, these for the great crystalline eyes, these for the flighty nerves and brain, choosing and forming, a limited but superhuman intelligence, prophetic of the future and aware of the past. The hawk's egg will make a hawk, and the serpent's a gliding serpent, but each with a little difference from its ancestors, and slowly, If it works, the race forms a new race. That, also, is a part of the plan within the egg. I believe the first living cell had echoes of the future in it, and felt direction and the great animals, the deep green forest and whales' track sea. I believe this globed earth, not all by chance and fortune, brings forth her broods. But feels and chooses. And the galaxy, the fire wheel on which we are pinned, the whirlwind of stars in which our sun is one dust grain, one electron, this giant atom of the universe, is not blind force, but fulfills its life and intends its courses. All things are full of God winter and summer, day and night, war and peace our God. Thus the thing stands. The labor and the games go on. What for? What for? Am I a God that I should know? Men live in peace and happiness. Men live in horror and die howling. Do you think the blithe son is ignorant, that black waste and beggarly blindness trail him like hounds, and will have him at last? he will be strangled among his dead satellites, remembering magnificence. I stand on a cliff at Sovernay's creek mouth. Westward, beyond the raging water and the bent shoulder of the world, the bitter, futile war in Korea proceeds, like an idiot prophesying. It is too hot in mind for anyone, except God, perhaps, to see beauty in it. Indeed, it is hard to see beauty, in any of the acts of men, but that means the acts of a sick microbe on a satellite of a dust grain, twirled in a whirlwind, in a world of stars. Something perhaps may come of him. In any event, he can't last long. Well, I am short of patience since my wife died, and this era of spite and hate-filled half worlds gets to the bone. I believe that man is too beautiful, but it is hard to see, and wrapped up in falsehoods, Michelangelo and the Greek sculptors, how they flattered the race, Homer and Shakespeare, how they flattered the race. One light is left us, the beauty of things, not men, the immense beauty of the world, not the human world. Look, and without imagination, desire, nor dream, directly at the mountains and sea. Are they not beautiful, these plunging promontories and flame-shaped peaks, stopping the somber, stupendous glory, the storm-fed ocean? Look at the Lobos rocks off the shore, with foam flying at their flanks, and the long sea lions couching on them. Look at the gulls on the cliff wind, and the soaring hawk under the cloud stream. But in the sagebrush desert, all one sun-stricken color of dust, or in the reeking tropical rainforest, or in the intolerant north and high thrones of ice, is the earth not beautiful, nor the great skies over the earth? The beauty of things means virtue and value in them. It is, the, it is in the beholder's eye, not the world, certainly. It is the human mind's translation of the transhuman intrinsic glory. It means that the world is sound, whatever the sick microbe does, but he too is part of it. And the last poem, the deer lay down their bones I followed the narrow cliffside trail, halfway up the mountain, above the deep river canyon. There was a little cataract across the path, flinging itself over tree roots and rocks, shaking the jeweled fern fronds, bright bubbling water pure from the mountain, but a bad smell came up. Wondering at it, I clambered down the steep stream some forty feet, and found in the midst of bush oak and laurel hung like a bird's nest on the precipice brink, a small hidden clearing, grass and a shallow pool. But all about there were bones lying in the grass, clean bones and stinking bones, antlers and bones. I understood that the place was a refuge for wounded deer. There are so many hurt ones, escape the hunters, and limp away to lie hidden. Here they have water for the awful thirst and peace to die in dense green laurel and grim cliff make sanctuary and a sweet wind blows upward from the deep gorge i wish my bones were with theirs but that's a foolish thing to confess and a little cowardly we know that life is on the whole quite equally good and bad mostly gray neutral and can be endured to the dim end no matter what magic of grass water and precipice and pain of wounds, makes death look dear. We have been given life and have used it, not a great gift perhaps, but in honesty should use it all. Mine's empty since my love died, empty, the flame-haired grandchild with great blue eyes that look like hers. What can I do for the child? I gaze at her and wonder what sort of man and the fall of the world. I am growing old. That is the trouble. My children and little grandchildren will find their way. And why should I wait ten years yet, having lived sixty-seven, ten years more or less, before I crawl out on a ledge of rock and die snapping like a wolf who has lost his mate? I am bound by my own thirty-year-old decision. Who drinks the wine should take the dregs. Even in the bitter lees and sediment, new discovery may lie. The deer in that beautiful place lay down their bones. I must wear mine. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us